think I heard a couple hundred amens, even though I can't uh, hear you clearly. I'm sure the heaven sure did. Thank you so much for such a beautiful, beautiful little song for us this morning. The truth of the message we declare is that only Jesus Christ can save you. It's only through his power, just like they just said. We have one gospel to preach, and it's that of Jesus Christ and him risen from the dead. And that's why we are so excited about this day and this time to spend in his word. We want to give him the glory for what he has done. And so I'm going to have you join me this morning in Ephesians chapter number 1. Ephesians chapter number 1. We're going to work our way into verse 18 and 19 and 20. Ephesians 1, 18, 19, and 20. Now, I've had 30 years of Easter messages. 30 years of Easter messages, and I've never had one like this one before. This is so unique. You and probably thought this past month was quite challenging. I would certainly say it reorganizes our routine, doesn't it? I'm not going to complain. Well, I could, but I won't. It's different. I've watched the news, and so have you, uh, maybe too much at times, realize that there are folks who have things much worse than we do. And to add just a biblical perspective for a few moments here, before we get started, um, I may never understand the changes that believers encountered in the early New Testament time Things that changed their lives because they believed in Jesus Christ. They lost jobs, and they lost land, and they lost their families, and they even lost their lives because they loved and followed Jesus. Scripture said in the book of Hebrews that the world is unworthy of these. Obviously, we're not under that kind of spiritual persecution here, and I praise the Lord for that. Nor does the challenges of this life today compare really much to the challenges they had. But there is a similarity between the two things, and that is simply this. What they had to do, we have to do, and that is to walk by faith. Scripture calls on all of us to do that, because God doesn't measure us by the scars we collect the heartbreaks we experience, or some other degree of suffering. He measures us by faith, Scripture says. Your faith in Him, my faith in Him, these are the things that gain approval in His sight. And so I just simply say, let us continue to walk by faith and not by sight. That's what Scripture calls us to do, regardless of the situation we're in. We're hoping that this is working well for you today to hear the message this way, and and uh, perhaps if this is working just fine, we might have to do it for a few more weeks in a fashion like this, and um, soon the Lord will allow us, I'm sure, to gather together as a congregation again. But for right now, let's turn our attention specifically to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of this too, because this is an issue of faith for us. The fact is this, we, we are trusting in what we have read in Scripture. We were not there the morning that the ladies 
went to the tomb to find it empty. We were not there with Peter and John running down the path to the place where Jesus had been buried. We did not walk on the road to Emmaus with the other disciples who had that unexpected visitor in their journey. But we believe. We believe because we have read these things, and these things were written so that we may believe, and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and we know these things to be true. It's very interesting to me how distracting the world has made our Resurrection Sunday into rabbits and eggs and things like that. When we say, that was a good Easter, it's a phrase that people will ask you, uh, did you have a good Easter? And our answer is, well, yes, it was very nice, but maybe this year you'll say, well, yes, it was very different. But it's interesting how things like this has taken away some of the distractions and brought us back to the main point, the emphasis that we put on this day. And the emphasis, honestly, that I'm putting on it in our study right now, I had started preparing before this virus ever broke out. I wanted to speak on hope. And the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, specifically through his resurrection. And what a fitting thing it is for our day and age. The series that I am going through, and I call this, What God Has Done, it looks at the results of the resurrection. I've had two other messages just on this theme alone, and and they're available on our church's website for you to go back and hear if you will. And I know not all of you had the opportunity to do that. So I'm going to review just for a few minutes of what we've already talked through. And uh, so just think along with me. If you've heard these things before, it's good for us to review them. If you haven't, then it's good to hear them. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, it says that we have a living hope. We have it. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now that is not some small thing. As Peter is emphasizing, this hope is not something we need, but something we have in Jesus Christ. And that's the emphasis I gave to it, too. There's a big difference between two thoughts. The first thought is, if we're always looking for something we need, then we are supposing by that action that we are lacking something, that God has not provided something, that our Christian life is incomplete. But on the other hand, if we realize that we have this hope already, And my definition is a confident expectation. If we realize we have it, we already have it, so to speak, in our hands, in our hearts, in our lives, then we see something. And we see that we are not lacking in spiritual things. We have a God who has provided for all of our need. And you believe that, and I do too. Scripture says so. Our Christian life is complete in Him. So I ask you to be of one opinion here. There's two thoughts before you. One is those who are searching for a need and those who understand that they have that already. I can tell you from Scripture, 
concerning the believer, we already have this hope in Jesus Christ. We have it. That's what the Bible teaches. It says, matter of fact, in Him we live and move and have our being. In Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, 2 Peter 1, 3, it says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Now tell me what's missing. It says, everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. You see, our problem is not in what God has done, but in our understanding of what God has done. That's why I take you to Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Uh, That's why we are emphasizing it right now in our study. Paul prays in that passage, at least that's the way we read it in verse 18. And this is what I pray as well. That the Lord will open our eyes to see what he has done. It is not that you are missing your eyes or they do not work. God has given us the ability to see with our heart, it says here. The eyes of your heart. You see it in the text. A special spiritual ability to perceive what great things we have in Jesus Christ. The first thing mentioned, as we've dealt with last week especially, verse 18, is the hope that I've been talking about. I pray, verse 18, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Now think with me today. Carefully use your eyes to see what God has said here. For this is His Word, and we believe it. As I said last week, Paul is actually starting with an assumption in this verse. It's true of every single believer in Jesus Christ. The way the text reads in the Greek, verse 18 starts this way. Having enlightened the eyes of our heart. Now, That means something has already happened to us. That means it's already been enabled. Technically, he's not praying as this would happen. Our our English text puts it that way to help us understand it. But I think, in a sense, it does a little disservice to us here because Paul's not asking for something we don't have or something we can't do. He actually wrote that we already have these eyes. And they already do work. And since you do have them, and since you can look, and you can see what God has done, let's look at the passage again. Let's see the hope that He's given in His calling. His calling. I I say that on purpose. Because I'm not going to take credit from Him. It does not say the hope of your calling. Not, I hope He called you. Because that doesn't bring a sense of security, does it? This is not a wish. This is a statement of something you already possess. Like I said, it's right there in your hand. As a believer, you already hold it. 
You don't need to find it. Just open your eyes. This is the confident expectation of His calling. It belongs to Him. That's what makes it so powerful to me and why I can say confidently that this hope does exist. It's because it's not based on me. I did not manufacture it, and you did not manufacture it, and so we can't take credit, can we? I don't want this calling based on me, to be honest, in any way. You can argue all you want with me about this, but a calling based on man is inferior to every way to a calling based on God. Nothing man can do will last. That's just true. Even heaven and earth is going to pass away. Man is much, like Scripture says, compared to the flower of the field. It's there for a day, it blooms, it fades, it blows away. And quite honestly, I don't want in any way my hope to have its base in me. I like it in Him. I like the calling to be His. It's anchored in the God who is omnipotent, omniscient, and eternal. You see what I'm saying? I want you to. If it is His calling, we don't take credit for it. If it is His calling, it comes with His wisdom. It comes with His strength. It comes with His love. It's His everything, if you will. Uh, It's something that we can have complete confidence in because He did it. We have it because He did it for us. This is the confident expectation we have. This is our hope. And how was it brought about? Look again with your eyes, verse number 18, where it says, What is, not what will be, not what we hope will be, but what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His inheritance, what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us. Keep going. Keep going. Verse 19, second half of verse 19. These are in accordance in proportion to the working of the strength of His might. I love that phrase. The working of the strength of His might. That's about the most powerful way you could describe anything. It covers all the aspect of power possessed and power enacted and power destroyed. Blade, you have the power of the omnipotent God right in front of you in verse 19. He's at work. His full operating ability, cranked up 100% here. And you say, wow, that's pretty powerful. Pastor, where do we see that exhibit? Where, where is that? Verse 20. Which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That's where the power is displayed. It's in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's pretty exciting. That's what the verses say. This is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. It's a display of what God can do. And I have to admit something here. It's hard to shake me off this theme. I love to talk about this over and over. I think it's good for us because our world will brainwash you into thinking that the things you lack are numerous, especially in spiritual things. But the Bible is clear about this thing. You have this through Jesus Christ. And it's not because of what you've done. It's because of what He's done. He's accomplished this. And there's nothing more valuable in my book in the Christian maturity that we're called to have 
than a constant measure of God's work in our lives as a reminder and a reinforcer of these great truths. Okay, so, do I have your attention now? I hope I do. I want to dig very deep with you for our next thought. There's something else you need to see that God wants you to see. It's written in the text. And I know if, if we understand this, we could live in light of this. And I have to say, really, as we go into the second part of verse number 18, this is big. This is big. It's something that has a direct relationship with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think we overlook it a little bit because we're not quite sure what it's about. Verse 18 says, and I'm going to put in words that I've been teaching you here, uh, from the Greek text especially. Verse 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you will know, see, actually the word is see in the Greek. Uh, Ido is the Greek verb, for those who know the Greek language here. Uh, it's a spiritual perception, and sometimes we consider that to be knowledge. It is from a spiritual vision so that you may see what is the hope of his calling, and that you may see what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. That's where I'm going to camp for a little bit with you here this morning. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? I want you to see this. It excites me a great deal. Now, you may be thinking right now, Pastor, what does that have to do with the celebration of an Easter Sunday? It's not about bunnies, you know. It's not about eggs. It's not about ham dinner. It's not about family gatherings. It's something that God has done. And this is so very huge. I hope we're able to see this. I imagine it's like trying to see the whole Grand Canyon with one glimpse. What are we supposed to see? Let's, let's do it this way, and maybe this will help. Let's go a little backwards through the text for a minute, okay? A little backwards and set the scene for this. In verse number 20, what this is that we're going to see was accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All right? Set that down first. We see that. It was accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 adds that it was in accordance to the great power of God working at full force. And that sounds important, doesn't it? Back up a little more. It's something we have. And we need to see it. It is the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Look, let's define some words. First, let's deal with the word saints. These are the ones who have been set apart for God. Another way of saying a believer in Jesus Christ. You do not have to do good things, be elevated over many years and evaluated and thought about, and a church finally can label you as a saint. You know, that's kind of silly when God already calls you a saint because of Jesus and not because of you. So mark the first thought. It's real simple. You as a believer are a saint. In verse number 18. Sounds good, doesn't it? Second, the word inheritance. Well, we know that word, don't we? Well, uh, the legal definition is whatever one receives upon the death of a relative 
due to the laws of descent and distribution. A little complicated, but we obviously understand the concept. We, we receive things from those that we're related to when they pass on. Now, as a believer, we are told that we have an inheritance. It's something greater, obviously, than a physical inheritance that we might receive in this world. It's an eternal one. It's a wonderful inheritance, and it is in heaven. But in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, it says, Since we are children, we're heirs also. We're heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. We get excited about those words, and then we skip the last part of the verse, where it says, If indeed we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. You say, well, let's not talk about suffering right now. Let's talk about inheritance. All right, Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Where we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. Look at verse 24 of chapter 3, Colossians 3.24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And then take it to 1 Peter again. I love taking you to 1 Peter. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it speaks of obtaining an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away and reserved in heaven for you. There, folks, is a great study. It talks about the things that we have because of what God has done. But now let's take another closer look here at verse 18 and see what the wording says. This is where I get very intrigued. It says that you may see what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. I can't help but notice that, can you? His inheritance, his, we're not talking about our inheritance here. That's wonderful. It's reserved, so let's set that aside. But we're talking about, ready? God's inheritance. Think of that. Is God lacking anything? No. God doesn't lack anything. Does he have glory? Yes, yes, he does. He has glory in his own being which is a topic way too big for us. He has glory in the praise of angels. He has the glory of heaven. He has the glory of all its splendor. He has the glory of all of creation. The, the world, the creation, screams of His glory. He has the glory, we could say, even in music. Every sound which gives praise back to Him. He has the glory in power, which is displayed in every aspect of the world around us. We, we can constantly go through scripture and find passages that speak of the glory of God and we say wow he's got it all yes every time we speak of glory it's as if God is wrapped in it for what glory is here's my question what glory is important enough to him that it's called his inheritance look again at the verse that you may see what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. What glory is so great that it's qualified with words like riches and abundance and wealth? In other words, what are the things that stand out among all the rest as a result of the resurrection of Christ that God calls His 
own inheritance. After all, we've talked about the legal definition. Whatever one receives upon the death of a relative due to the law of descent and distribution. Well, Jesus Christ died. And from that very act of his own son, God has received something. Are you ready? You ready? What is it? It's you. It's you. All right, brace yourself. I want you to see this. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Like I said, this is huge. But it has fascinating ramifications for us as well. Let me show you something. Just so you know I'm not making this up. Or twisting something for this purpose. How many times is this referred to in Scripture as amazing? I've already mentioned this verse that we're talking about. But go back to verse 11 for a minute. Chapter 1, verse 11. Look at this. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will. Look at verse 14. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now we're reading that and we're saying, okay, we're talking about what we have, our inheritance that we have because of this. Step back for a second and look at this with me, all right? I know it says what uh, in verse number 11, we have obtained an inheritance. And it sounds very much like a simple thing. The verb, we have obtained, and the noun, an inheritance. I guess it wouldn't surprise you for me to say, well, the Greek text has a different emphasis. It's not carried into our English as well. Um, if I could show it to you, you'd look at it and you'd say, oh, yeah, I see that now. Here's what it says. In whom also we were made an inheritance. The emphasis is not on what we have done, but on what God has done and what He has done for Himself. And I went through all my Bible translations, as I like to do when I find an interesting phrase like this, and I said, okay, did anybody pick up on that? Did anybody put it down? And honestly, it did get recorded once before in a version called the Revised Version of the Bible. And this is the way they translated verse 11. In whom also... We were made a heritage, having been foreordained according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His will. As you can see, it's entirely keeping with the tone of the whole passage. Now let me read to you a couple of technical things, and I think it will be okay. But Kenneth Weiss was a, uh, a Greek scholar, served at Moody for some years, and, and wrote some wonderful books to help us understand the Greek text. And it sounds a little complicated when we start. Don't tune out, because when it gets to the end, you're going to love it. All right, he's talking about that second phrase, what is the, what is the uh, riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What is the wealth of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The words, in the saints, he calls, locative of spear. In other words, draw a circle and put a pin right in the middle of it. He says, that's what we're looking at. It's about the saints. God's inheritance is within the sphere of the saints. That is, in this phrase, in the sphere of the saints. It defines the word inheritance. It takes you back to verse 11, and I just showed you this, where Paul says that we saints were made 
God's inheritance. In verse 18, Paul prays that we might know how precious the saints are in God's eyes as his inheritance. He is glorified in his saints. And this glory is valuable. It is part of the wealth that God possesses. Dearer to him than all the splendors of creation. I love the way he wrote all that out. Because that is incredible thoughts that God has toward you and me because of Jesus Christ. The expositor's commentary many, many, many years ago wrote this. Not only was it the purpose of God to make known the secret of His grace to us as Christians, but this purpose was also fulfilled in us to the point of fact that we were made His own. Not only chosen for His portion, but actually made that. The best Greek texts have not, we have obtained an inheritance, but we were made an inheritance, or we were designated as a heritage. Thus, the saints are God's heritage, His possession through the work of Christ on the cross. See, I didn't make this up. You are God's inheritance. And do you know that was prophesied 700 years before Jesus died? Before He rose again? That was prophesied? I'm going to take you to a text you know very well. It's Isaiah chapter 53. We know this passage well because it speaks of the crucifixion of Christ. It speaks of the depth of his suffering on our behalf. I'm going to start reading this, but when I get toward the end of it, you're going to see something that sometimes we thought was confusing, but I think in light of our emphasis today, you will find it wonderful. It's a Sobering passage, I know, but it ends with a beautiful, beautiful theme. It says, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of a parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people, to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. He was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Watch now. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, 
he will see his offspring. Did you just catch that? We're looking beyond the cross here, folks. He's willing to be crushed. He's willing to have the grief. He's willing to render himself as a guilt offering. He's willing to die. Why? He will see his offspring. He will prolong his day. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Watch again. As a result of the anguish of the soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his righteous, or his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, now, we're going to get into a therefore here. He just said a glorious truth. Jesus Christ would be crushed to death for our sins. Yes. But it was looking beyond that cross that he'd see his offspring, who were the many that he would justify. That he would bring them to himself through that. He will see it. That naturally implies he must be alive to do it. But watch what happens in verse 12. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Stop right there. Folks, after a war, the dead do not benefit from dividing the spoil. This is beyond death. It has to require a resurrection for him to be there to divide the spoil of anything. He would have had to have been living. I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressions. What is his portion? What is the spoils of the battle? What is it that the Lord has gained because of his death? What is it, according to this passage, satisfied him? What is it that brought pleasure in his hand? What is it that he had prevailed for that brought him such joy? Hebrews 12.2 gives us the answer. Well, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is that joy that was set before him? It wasn't the throne, folks. It wasn't the seat he had beside the potter. He already had that. It wasn't the glory of heaven that already belonged to him. It's kind of funny that uh, Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. Jesus already owned it all. It wasn't the praise of angels either. That's all his too. Why he purchased with his blood, was you and me. Believers in Jesus Christ. What he purchased for his Father was you and me. The inheritance the Father receives, a gift from the Son. You want to see this? This is great. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The resurrection chapter. Very appropriate that we're here this morning. Resurrection chapter. There's so many wonderful, wonderful things in chapter 15. Maybe today you might have time to look at it. But I want to take your attention to verse 23 through verse 28. The hardest of the verses to understand, I think. Very challenging verses. But watch 
It's really exciting. This is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 23, but each in his order. He's talking about the resurrection. Each one raised up in his order. Christ the firstfruits, of course, and they that are Christ, that means belonging to him, at his coming. Then comes the end, it says, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be abolished is death. For he has put all things in in subjection under his feet. And when he has said, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he's accepted who did subject all things to him. That's where it gets a little complicated, doesn't it? But when all things have been subjected unto him, verse 28 says, then shall the Son also himself be subjected to him, who did subject all things unto him, that God may be all in all. This is God's inheritance. Accomplished completely by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I'm very inadequate, I I understand, of trying to find the exact words to express something that's so very big for us today. I just pray that the lot... Uh, the Lord will open your eyes to what you see here. He's saying in Ephesians 1, remember, I pray that your eyes may be, of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know, and I'm going to skip right to it, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. That's the point. You are God's inheritance. He finds that glorious. Let me say this. There are ramifications for this, and it's real simple. First, like I said, when it's all said and done, it will all go to the glory of God. Only. As I begin, and as I repeat as often as I can, we do not get 1% of the credit here. This great salvation was brought about by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We did not earn it. We did not do it. We did not plan it. We did not purchase it. But we have received it by His great mercy, by His great grace, and by His great love. He did it. Second thing I'll point out. If He has done it, then it will last. And it will be complete exactly the way He designed it. There is no power greater than His, folks. Nothing or no one can thwart this. you hear it? No one. If you think that maybe this somehow rides upon you in any way, or think that if you had chose not to participate in His great big plan, then you must think that you have more power than Him to bring about your will than He has to bring about His will. If I were a betty man, I'd know where to put my money on this one. That's why I have security in the Lord. Not because of me. It's because my salvation is built on Him. From beginning to end, it is His work. Because Philippians says, He who began this good work in me will complete it. Mark that verse, chapter 1, verse 6, if you need that. Scripture says here in Ephesians chapter 1, that this is all planned... And all considered finished. You mark it. 
early part of Ephesians chapter 1. Before the world was even created. Now that's big. That means we didn't have any way of manipulating this. Now I read in this same passage that's before us that you and I are his inheritance. Now how's that going to change? Some people say, well, you know what? Maybe God sees this as a bad deal. Maybe he doesn't look at us like we think. Maybe, maybe he thinks he might have got ripped off because he got us. Is the price of the blood of Christ that purchased you that cheap? That God would spend his life, the life of his son for you? And we stand back and say, I, I, I'm not worthy of this. I know we're not worthy of this. But God doesn't look at it, you, the way that he looks at, or the way that we look at ourselves. God sees you as the glory of his, the riches of the glory of his inheritance. It's a price of the blood Christ has purchased. You. You are his riches. That's an amazing thing. Just open your eyes and look at the passage. We talk about hope. We talk about calling. Where we talk about his inheritance in the saints. All of that is made possible by that same power that brought about the resurrection of Christ. So what does this day mean to us? Well, it ought to mean a great deal to us. Because what we see here is what God has done for us. And in that we ought to rejoice. Don't tell me that you have something more powerful against you than the power that's in you. Don't tell me that God's calling won't work in your life. Don't tell me your situation's too complicated. Don't tell me your sins are too difficult or impossible to defeat. Don't tell me that God cannot untangle your mess. That your consequences are too great. That they're too permanent. That they're too complex for a simple gospel message of Jesus Christ. Don't tell me that your need is too big for God to meet. I just want you to understand the power of the resurrection of Christ and the difference it makes. I want you to have the eyes of your heart working here this morning, that you can see what God has already done for you, the strength that He has for you. It gives confidence, not just for today in their current situation, because God can certainly deal with our present, but He's also dealing with our forever. And that we have in the resurrected Christ. Because He is alive forevermore. He did it. He maintains it. Our hope is as alive as He is. Our hope will stay alive as long as He does. And Scripture says He's alive forevermore. And that's our hope, folks. That's what God has done. The results of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, can you be confident in this? Are your expectations concreted today? I really don't want you to go another day thinking that everything's dependent upon you, yourself, to get see you through this. Believe what God has said. Believe in how God has just described you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Believe that your hope is alive and it's as permanent as the Lord Jesus Christ risen from the dead. If you want to talk to me, you're always free to call. I would love to talk to you. Um, 
the message of the gospel is quite simple. It's what God has done through Jesus Christ, and by faith in Him, we have that. And I rejoice in that today. I hope you do too. I'm going to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to have a, another song played for you, and then I will close our service. So join me right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for what you have done. What a glorious thing it is. And maybe a theme too big for us, but a theme we ought to know, a theme we ought to learn and study. For this is a great thing that we will see someday with our own eyes when we stand in glory and realize that we are your workmanship. We are what you have designed and created that we might be with you to the glory of your own name. You've accomplished this. And we praise you for it, Lord. Thank you so much. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. This resurrection that we celebrate here today. What a precious thing it is. May your name be glorified from this congregation today. So we're spread about in many different places. May we take the time to stop and say thank you, Lord, for what you have done. But we do that even now. We pray in our Savior, who is alive forevermore, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.